love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter uh, 17, in verses 11 through 19. As you do that, just a couple of other elements I'll add to what you just saw as you find your place in your Bible, your sermon notes, and so on. Um, the, uh, a couple extra challenges to the class that I was a part of was that um, the, the, the ones who attended, last time I was there, we were out in a village. And so it was a lot more homogenous in terms of who's in the room. Uh, this time, there was a group of pastors who came uh, five hours by bus. Uh, they're tribal pastors. They're out in the boonies, really. Uh, you, not just that you can see it from there. No, they're there. Uh, the ends of the earth, out in the hills where the snakes and the terrorists are. And a lot of those guys on the right-hand side, 13 of them, um, average uh, education of about second grade. And really valuing this kind of an education that can speak to where they're at. And then in the, because we were in the city, we had a number of other people in class who have bachelor's degrees, other time in university working on master's uh, projects and things like that. So my teaching was, was with a very broad group of people in terms of concepts and words and ability with language and things like that. So it made teaching an awful lot of fun. And then I would say as well, uh, you know how, how here, because we have Thanksgiving placed where it is so close to Christmas, there's this running debate, generally good-spirited, about when to begin playing Christmas music? Okay, you know where you stand on this, and I've told you where I stand. I mean, my goodness sakes. October, if you're not playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you are late, baby. So I discovered kindred spirits as I went to the Philippines because without the hard stop of Thanksgiving to debate... Uh, word on the street is you, you listen to Christmas music and decorate for Christmas beginning in all the burr months. You picking it up? This is a third of the year, man. So I got off the airplane and I'm hearing Christian Christmas songs flew through the airport and the restaurants and the elevators everywhere I went and trees are up or going up and it was glorious. So all of you who, you know, maybe a little more curmudgeonly on such conservative conservative on such things, yeah, travel a little bit, and uh, you'll get your, your uh, self-corrected a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, Matt. Yeah, 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 uh-huh, right. Well, so we come today to uh, 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 the, the Gospel of Luke, and as you know, obviously in doing so, we're stepping out of our series in 2 Corinthians, and uh, we do this routinely. This is our preaching rhythm. That is, uh, we routinely preach through Bible books, but at the holiday season, just believing it's so important that at Thanksgiving time that we, we address that as the theme and then follow that right away as we head into the season of Advent, which we take as a, a season that's important to address so much wonderful theology to be uh, presented during seasons of Advent about the incarnation and work of Christ and salvation and so on. And so, as you know, our Christmas programs are a seven-year series telling seven stories, the highlights of, of the redemption story, and then our preaching for those Advent seasons goes along with the program that is presented. So it's intended to be kind of a package every year. And then, of course, this is year seven of a seven-year cycle, which we've now completed twice. And just familiarizing God's people again and again with the story of redemption and those, those important details that we want to never forget. This year, of course, as you've heard and will again, 
uh, looking at the story of redemption from, redemption from the standpoint of heaven, looking back, and how we will never bore, be bored with or tire of hearing and celebrating God's work of redemption, even when we're in his glorious presence. So more on that, of course, uh, even later today. But this morning, then, I want to step into the, the Gospel of Luke and look at one little story. My title, of course, uh, the story of, a, of the grateful foreigner, and that's really what it's about. And I want us to think together about what's happening in the text and then perhaps take a step back and think a little more theologically about what's going on here as well. But that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, my, my hope is that God will challenge our hearts, all of us, not only with the, with the feelings of thankfulness that I, I hope we often have, but with the very act of giving thanks to God for his work uh, in our lives and to us. So pray with me, please, if you would, and we will jump into the text here. Uh, together. Father, would you help us? There are so many things to distract, uh, even me. And I pray that you would help us uh, to, to, to focus on the word of God today and to take this journey into the text and back into the time of Jesus and to do so in a way that would be encouraging and helpful and rich. So we, we ask for a special help, the work of the spirit of God among us. And you know what each of us needs to hear. And I pray today that we would all be pointed to the person of Christ and respond to the word of God with joy and with faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the Gospel of Luke, and I've given you several things here on your sermon notes, a few things about Thanksgiving. My third bullet point there under that heading is something of a definition, not intended to be ultimately precise, but something to work with today. So I'm I'm wanting to say today, Thanksgiving is an appropriate and ongoing and active response to God's mighty and merciful acts in the world and in our lives. So big picture, smaller picture, God's mighty acts, his merciful acts often are wed in his goodness to us as certainly takes place in the story we'll look at together today. And then, of course, Psalm 107, give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He is good. He is indeed good. So you look down to the paragraph called today's text. Now, just to orient all of us, I realize all of us come from different places in our understanding of how the Bible's put together, how it all works. The New Testament begins with four tellings of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three of those are often called the synoptic gospels, uh, because the word meaning one look to look similarly at the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of do that. The Gospel of John takes a little more of a theological approach and looks at things just a bit differently, all of them together helping us think about the work of Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Luke, of course, uh, is the longest of the Gospels, not in chapters, but in volume, 28 chapters in Matthew, more volume in Luke, and it's 24 chapters than in Matthew. But And a companion volume to the book of Acts, written by the same person, Dr. Luke, first century doctor. So telling the story of Jesus, telling the story of the early church. And the little part that we're going to look at today here in chapter 17, is this is the only telling of this little story. The other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, don't tell this same story. Though there's some people who think they know how it all fits, uh, perhaps really close to John 11. Uh, but... That's up for discussion, I suppose. And of course, it's, as we're going to read it in a moment, it tells a story about Jesus encountering a group of lepers, people who were sick with a terrible disease, and, and hopeless is my key word there. Hopeless, utterly hopeless. There was no healing for this. There was no bottle of, of penicillin that was going to address first century leprosy. 
So you really were facing a life sentence. This was going to be your life and your death. And everybody knew it. So it was a dread disease. Once diagnosed and confirmed that you are uh, a person with leprosy, you were out. You were, by your own choice, you left immediately. You don't stop and have a party and celebrate with the kids and stick around through Christmas. No, you leave now because you don't want to infect everybody else in your family. So you're going to leave for their good, and you'll be an outcast living on the edges of society until you die. Well, hopeless, truly, truly hopeless. Hopeless. I want to read this story, and then I want to think about it under two headings with you. Um, and so, so hearing God's word then, Luke 17, 11 through 19. And so we read. On the way to Jerusalem, he, and that of course is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So there's a geographical marker, okay? And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was cleansed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And there it is. Now, interestingly, this little story, little vignette, it, it, it stands kind of like some of Jesus' parables. Parables, of course, are stories not intended to be accurate in terms of, of, of history and geography and so on, but, but a story with a point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, all carry parables, and this has some of the trappings of it, but it isn't one. It's really telling a story of something that's happening. And so, but it kind of plays as a, as a standalone, but I, I want to suggest to you that it's part of a larger purposeful narrative To help us think about this, as you see in front of you, I want to go back to chapter 9, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, for just a couple of minutes to to place today's text in its broader uh, context in 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 the Gospel, okay? All of this I have under the heading, the truly needy. Encounter the all-sufficient one. So you come back to to Luke chapter 9, and you'll notice it at verse 50 to 51. There's kind of a shift that takes place and is identified in the text. I'm not making it up. Really, Luke 1 through chapter 9 and verse 50, that section tells the whole story of the early part of Jesus. So really a smaller amount of material covering uh, the birth of Jesus, all the attendant issues there with that first Christmas, all the way up to this point in Jesus' life. But then in chapter 9, verse 51, there's, there's a, a kind of a shift that takes place, and here Jesus begins to set his face to go to Jerusalem for that work of redemption when Jesus dies on the cross in our place as our sin bearer. So that's where he's heading. heading. So at this point, it's like he, he, that's where he's going now. So the rest of the book, chapter 951 through the end of chapter 24, as a unit, focus on a smaller section of Jesus' life. So it's like it goes really, really fast, covers a lot of, of, of time, and then here it slows down as Luke like pumps the brakes to say, no, no, please pay attention to every single part of this uh, in, in kind of a special way. 
So that's, that's what's going on as you come from chapter 9 and place uh, our text in that same slow it down type of setting. Now, I also want to come to this moment in 951. I want to read through 56 because I want you to see some of the background that affects the story we're looking at today. And that is the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. Okay, really important to read the Gospels. You really need to understand this. And many of you do, I realize, but we'll just massage it a little bit today for all of our good. But notice here then, as I read this little paragraph, it helps us understand this. So we read, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That seemed reasonable at that point to them. Sounded like a great idea. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Well, um, first of all, if I could just give you a little geographical sketch. All right, this, this and, and the geography and history would help just a little bit here. If you think of the land of Israel as similar to, in terms of size, Western Washington, not exact, not trying to be, but just kind of like that. All right, Western Washington, the Canadian border down to the, the Columbia River and then the ocean to the mountains. If you just kind of think of that as the land of Israel, Samaria would fit right about Seattle, okay, north of uh, the middle, but, but kind of there, and separating people up north from the people in the south. The, the, the people of Samaria, of course, had a little challenge when it goes back to the Assyrians. So several hundred years before this event here with Jesus, when the Assyrians had come in to kind of take over the northern part of Israel, they had done this big transplanting work. That is, they took a bunch of Jewish people and hauled them away, and they brought a bunch of foreigners, non-Jewish people, in and dropped them in that same area. So they intermingled racially, okay? Intermarried, etc. So now, several hundred years later, that, that group of people are not purebred Jewish people, okay? So the people in the north and the people in the south tended to be more purebred Jewish people and tended to look down on those, those rascally Samaritans. Uh, excluded from worship and excluded from all kinds of things. But it, w- it really ran deep. It did. When people today talk about racial issues and racial tension, let me tell you something, folks. We didn't invent this. This is as old as humanity. For as long as people have been running around eating and breathing, uh, we have found ways to dislike and pick on other people that are not like us. So for all the, it's as bad as it's ever been, that's really not true. And it's only here in America, we're really bad at it. Hey, guess what, friend? Get out of your own little comfort zone in this culture a little bit. Look at, look at broader history. So yes, in fact, racism has been around a very long time. It's not excusable, not okay, but it's really in the Bible a lot as a problem. And it is here with the Samaritans and the Jewish people. They didn't like each other. Uh, the Jewish people looked down on those rascally Samaritans, called them, you know, sometimes half-breeds and Gentile dogs and all kinds of other things like that. When the, a good Jewish person would walk through their areas, they'd get out and they'd ceremonially wash their hands, not for germs, for Samaritan cooties, or so it was thought, that kind of thing. I'm going to wash my hands. Wow, okay, because you, you know, I walked through their town, ate at one of their diners or something, uh, you know, Samaritans. So, and the feeling was mutual. 
such that here, Jesus and his friends are on their way to Jerusalem, and it describes them, in this case, going through Samaria. You didn't have to. You could go straight through, or if you wanted to avoid the whole problem, you could go east. And some people did. In Jesus' day, they crossed the Jordan River, Transjordan, kind of go around Samaria. It'd be kind of like if you were in Bellingham and you wanted to go to Vancouver, instead of going right down the I-5, you'd go over to, say, Yakima, because you want to avoid the people in Seattle. I realize, I don't want to play that too long and loud because you just might feel that way, uh, avoiding the liberals in Seattle. Not my point at all. I'm just saying, Jesus, in this case, they went straight through and they stopped for dinner. They enter a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. They want to get some food, send the guys ahead, get some, find some dinner. They wouldn't serve them. Who would ever heard of such thing? They flipped around the open sign to, you know, closed. You're not welcome here. Who would have ever heard of such thing? Well, James and John don't take kindly to this. The text here does not say, and there were some words exchanged, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, hence the, let's call down fire from heaven and, you know, take care of this, baby. Uh, Jesus, what do you think? If we go all prophetic here, and we'll just kind of close this, close this joint down. And Jesus said, wrong day, wrong day for that. Let's not do that. But there were clearly uh, some emotion. There was clearly some emotion involved here. Calling down fire from heaven wasn't just something you did when somebody cut you off in traffic. So, so there was animosity, is what I'm saying, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, and the feeling was mutual both ways. Okay, which makes it, when you read the Gospels, so much more surprising, as it's intended to be, when you read the Gospel of John and you find Jesus talking to the woman at the well because she is a Samaritan and she is a woman and she's been married several times and now living with somebody she's not married to and so that put her on the outs. And in that culture, of course, that meant she was five times rejected. She didn't have the right to divorce. The men did. So Jesus, when he addresses a Samaritan woman with a questionable background, and he's kind to her, this is utterly shocking, as it was to his followers. What are you doing being all nice to her? Well, you find interesting elements here as the, the, the challenge, the problem between the Samaritans and the Jewish people plays out. Now, in your Gospel of Luke now, as you head back toward chapter 17, you'll notice, if you turn just a page or two, chapter 10 is where Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And of course, what I just said is the background to that story. And for a good Jewish person in Jesus' day to hear about a good Samaritan, that's oxymoronish. What do you mean, good Samaritan? I mean, what are, you trying to, what are you trying to pull over on us? What do you mean, good Samaritan? Are there any, I mean, are there really good Samaritans? That's the point. So it plays into just the common tellings of the stories in the life of Jesus. And so then you, you move along the way there, all of this compressed into the last part of Jesus' life, and you come to our main text in chapter 17. And, and the conflict between uh, Jews and Samaritans plays a big role in this text. Now, my second bullet point then under this heading, before we start stepping into it more particularly, this is the fourth of five miracles that are, telling, that are told as part of this journey of Jesus. It's one of the fourth of five, uh, the next one's in chapter 18, uh, on the way to the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. So really important to notice the history, the geography, some of those elements. It makes the text kind of come alive. Now, you come to verse 12 then, in the text I read a moment ago, 
and you, you meet these, these 10. He enters a village. We're not told what kind of village. It's not called out by name. We're met with 10, 10 lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, and they cry out for mercy. Now, they're doing what good leper, good lepers, what, what lepers should have done in this day, okay? Because leprosy was, regard, was a terrible disease, regarded as such, certainly. There were rules based in the Old Testament about what you were to do if you were, if you were afflicted with leprosy. Not only were you to leave the covenant community immediately, you were now unclean ceremonially, unable to worship with the covenant crowd, not able to go home ever again, but you were to stand at a distance and you were to, you were to co- you cover your face and you were to cry out unclean if someone got close to you so that they would know, stay away. So they're doing what they should do. They're standing at a distance and they're, they're no doubt have said, unclean, unclean. And here's these 10 people who are, are uh, objects of pity, they can't work. Uh, they live because others are kind to them, put food out and things like that. Uh, and that's their life till they die. Um, they're, they're to stay away. And, and basically, you know, they showed up here, I, I suspect, because they heard a story. Somebody rippling, the stories ripple through a community. There's a healer. There's some healer that's supposed to be able to fix people like you. Somehow that story has gotten to them. Now, I hasten to point out as we've seen already, one of them is a Samaritan, the other nine Jewish background people. And, and these are people that in normal life probably wouldn't have hung out. But these 10 are, at least in, they are at the moment. Uh, people who I think is, uh, this would be true of humanity. Sometimes the separations between people are set aside when there's a common crisis whether it's a hurricane or uh, other kinds of acts of nature and so on, sometimes people that wouldn't ordinarily talk end up needing to function together because they, they recognize their common need. And I think that's the case here. It's a common need that puts these 10 together. The Jewish people allowing this Samaritan to hang out with them, they're all unclean anyway, but somehow they're, they're identified here as a group and I suspect united in their need. If you, I don't know if, you, um, uh, if you've watched the old Ben-Hur movie from 1959 with Charlton Heston. There's a scene here. It's really pretty well done, I'm guessing, uh, not having seen first century, of course, in reality. But where, where Judah Ben-Hur goes out to a, a leper colony looking for his sister and his mother. And you'll remember the, as, he, as he comes into that area, the lepers are going, what are you doing? We're unclean. Stay away from us. Because they didn't want to infect a healthy person. But he's looking for his family. And it is very clear in the, in the movie, he's risking his own health to do so. Family is just too important. So he's going anyway. All right? But I think the idea of the unclean and the hiding, living in the, you know, caves and places, anywhere you could, I think it would probably pretty accurately represent what these folks have. Please understand, they've lost everything. They've lost everything. Their family, their job, their future, career, hope. It's gone. And your job now is to eat whatever people give you and die. And that's it. So they have lost everything. These are not hope-filled people playing one of the options in their life. These are truly hopeless people Apart from a mighty act, merciful act of God, there is no hope. Okay? So you, you might be aware of needs and concerns in your own life. Well, let me tell you, this group uh, has you beat. You, at least, have hope that something might resolve, or a new job, 
or relationship just might get healed as time goes on. You at least have hope. These guys had zero on that scale. Lepers didn't get healed. Okay? So these folks come. I find it interesting here. In verse 13, they cry out for mercy. In this case, they don't say, Jesus, Master, heal us. In fact, their cry is very similar to what's reflected in chapter 18, the blind man near Jericho in chapter 18, verse 38, who likewise says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, in verse 39, have mercy on me. They're asking for a merciful act. Their need is evident. Sometimes as we pray, you know, we spell out our needs. Nothing wrong with that. But it's an encouragement to me that sometimes when there is an expression in our heart that we find a hard time putting to words, it's really okay. Because the one to whom you pray doesn't really have to have your words to understand your heart. So for them to cry out, Lord, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy. It says it all. Mercy. Lord, help. Please help. So there's a desperation in their cry. I'm sure that Jesus' reputation as a healer has has come to them. They've shown up happy to come across his path. Now, verse 14, the, the moment as we read it, where he saw them and he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. What an amazing moment. Go, yourself, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, that, that in itself is, is, a, is a quite a command. Because for the Jewish crowd, the nine of the ten, this act is how they ended up out there to begin with. A priest pronounced them unclean and sent them away. And away they went. The, the Samaritan person, wow, full of leprosy, not probably used to running to the Jewish priests because the Samaritans didn't typically do that. But, but nonetheless, among them, and as they went, so some evident faith is exercised here because off they go, and apparently as they're going, their, their skin clears up. If you've ever had a skin disease, can you imagine it being healed rather than weeks later, months later, to have it healed as you're going? This is an amazing thing. Obviously, whoever told you to go did something special, and as they're going, they're cleansed. Now, that's a massive healing, not only physically, but all the social relationships, uh, worship opportunities, uh, exclusion from the covenant community that now is reversed. This is a massive new lease on life that happens in a moment. Can you imagine? There's a lot to be grateful for here. This is a jaw drop moment. It's unexpected, unprecedented. And as I mentioned here, going to the priests, this would be shocking to the priests as well. You didn't have a big line of former lepers coming. You didn't get up in the morning and say, well, who's been healed lately? Uh, Not so much. Unless Jesus has gotten to them, nobody's coming. Lepers aren't cleansed. There's no other way. But for the merciful, mighty act of God in, in healing them. Absolutely stunning. Now, of course, the as the story plays out, I mentioned it's parable-like as, as the way Luke tells it here. One comes back, verse 15, seeing he's been cleansed. Comes back praising God with a loud voice, fell on his face at Jesus' feet to give him thanks. And Luke says, and he was a Samaritan. 
He's, he's intending you to feel the full brunt of that. That is, the one that you would least expect to come back and say thank you does. And the nine that you would expect to give thanks don't. That's intended to make you catch your breath. Certainly the original audience noticed all of that, but the way Luke writes it, it's intended that you and I as readers would be stopped by that. He was a Samaritan. Now, Jesus, not wanting to let the moment be ignored, he calls it out. Where are the rest? Were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Only this foreigner. That's not a, a put down on this foreigner. It's to identify him as the one least likely on the spiritual scale to give thanks. Now, I want to I highlight something here that I, I, I think would be uh, true for us. Often, we have feelings of thankfulness, and this is well and good. We have feelings of thankfulness. We feel thankful about things, sometimes less so because we are focused too much, maybe, on all the things that are broken and a mess, even in our own lives or those we love. It's easy to be occupied with all the things that aren't right. Um, but perhaps periodically having feelings of thankfulness. I'm happy with feelings of thankfulness. But I'm wanting to draw a difference between feeling thankful and expressing it. Of course, the purpose here, this isn't about telling everybody else you're thankful. This is about addressing God. Uh, that's who, who is supposed to be addressed for the thankfulness is God himself. Um, but there's a difference, and I hope you experience it this week. The difference between feeling thankful, which I hope you feel, and then going the next step and expressing it, of saying thank you to God for his many kindnesses to you. And may I say, if you get stuck with, yeah, but there's so much wrong, you've missed the point. Or you're willfully blind. I'm not sure which it is. If, you, if your focus is mainly on the stuff that's broken, of which there's a lot, let me tell you something. If you wait to give thanks till there's nothing broken, you'll be in heaven. And you'll have missed, it out, missed out on it here. If you wait till there are no broken relationships, nobody who's ill, if you wait until there's no one in your sphere of influence who's battling cancer or some other dread disease, if you wait till there's everybody, everybody around you is doing great, the economy's turned around, you love all the politicians in the world, if you wait till that day, let me just tell you, you're never going to stop and give thanks, are you? No, this this is about uh, one who has received... uh, a kindness from God that only he could do. And rather than saying, yeah, but I still haven't seen my family. I still don't have a job. I still have no bank account. My life is still messed up. How can I possibly stop and get... He, he, he sees it. Instead of waiting till it's all well, he comes back to Jesus and for his mighty and merciful act, he says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. And he gives praise to God. If you're a wait till it's all fixed to give thanks person, um, well, don't be. <laughs> Fix it this week. Fix it this week. Now, I want to I I speak with you then about this second section. This is a, a longer phrase than I usually give. I try to limit myself to one-liners for headings. 
I just couldn't do it this time. And there's, there's more theology here than I could possibly discuss, but I'm going to try in a couple of minutes anyway. So my second heading, Jesus gives a glimpse of God's coming kingdom by restoring shalom through physical healing. Okay, um, if I may, uh, have a stab at this. When you read the Bible, uh, at the very beginning, you, you see what God created in Genesis 1 and 2, as it's described. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And we've uh, talked about the Jewish word shalom here before, sometimes in a reductionistic way, equated with peace, like peace to you, peace to you, shalom. It's so much more than that. In the, in the concept of the Bible, shalom is wholeness, it's wellness, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's emotional, it's harmony, it's human flourishing, it's nature and heaven and nature singing, okay? It's what you long for, a world where actually nothing is broken, including you. Can you imagine it? We have a hard time with that because we've never experienced it, not for a minute. We've always, from the time we're babies, We've been born into a broken world where something's wrong or I'm hungry, I'm wet, and I don't know what to do about it. And it never really gets better. It's kind of that the rest of your life. Something's broken. I don't know what to do about it. Well, indeed. So shalom at the very beginning is what God created. And that's what's broken when Adam and Eve sin. It's certainly that their relationship with the creator is broken. But more than that breaks. As you read the biblical account there in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, yes, separation between them and God, their creator, that wholeness is now broken. But even more, uh, the, the, the creation itself at that point is, is subjected, Paul would say in Romans 8, to futility. The creation from that moment on groans and travails. Again, Romans 8 describes this in great detail. Creation itself is in bondage. Creation is broken, if you've ever noticed. Hence, illnesses and weaknesses and the, the, the difficulties of aging and ultimately death. It's all of, all of nature is broken. It's subjected to, this, the, to the curse, we often call it, and rightly so. Certainly the song, Joy to the World, the Christian song we sing, captures those elements. Of no more let's, uh, let's, uh, let's see, how's it go? The North thorns infest the ground. It's, it's describing a reversal, joy to the world. These things are going to shift one day. So, so you think about the, the, the richness in the song, Joy to the World. It is a profoundly theological song, often just kind of hummed through as we think, hey, it's Christmas, time to buy gifts. Oh, so much more. Christmas music, much of it is so richly theological. I hate to, to, to just, okay, rush it through in five weeks. That's That aside. Um, yeah, amen. I know you meant that. Um, so, so shalom. So Jesus comes, and at this moment, as he walks as a human on planet Earth, healing the sick, raising the dead, teaching all these things, he is he is in this brief moment uh, restoring shalom. In a sense, giving a preview of God's coming kingdom. He's saying, "Do you, do you like this? You know, sick people being made well, and this." guy who died being raised to, to, to life and restored to his mother and Lazarus being restored to his family. Do you like this? Now, he wasn't starting something that was going to be like that forever. It was what I've called here, and theologians use this term, I didn't make it up, an inbreaking of God's coming kingdom. It's like a preview of what is one day going to be. It's a taste. That's what Jesus was doing. He was giving a taste of, of, of God's coming kingdom. Um, 
I, I reference here uh, Isaiah 65 and 66 texts we took a look at when we preached through Isaiah. Those that, that look at elements of God's coming kingdom, uh, the restoration that one day will be, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Now, we're familiar with things that are a foretaste. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We, again, we sing in songs. Um, because we have like in Tacoma or Seattle, you have a taste a bite of Tacoma, a bite of Seattle. It's intended to give a small preview of something. It's intended to focus it here. Uh, Pastor Tyler and Karen with perspectives. To, to get people to sign up for the class, they give a taste of perspectives. Some of you have been to that. It's like a preview. If you like this, just wait. There's more to come. That's what they're doing. That's what Jesus is doing too. As I note here now, Jesus certainly, second bullet point, he is being truly merciful in the moment. It's true. Very kind to these hurting and broken people. He's also, of course, by these miracles, amazing works of God, he's verifying his identity, Jesus is, as one sent from God. But it's a glimpse of the kingdom. Do you like this? Do you long to see a day when sick are restored When remission isn't just temporary? Do you long to see a day when life doesn't just degenerate from the time you're 30 on? Wow, that's encouraging. Do you long to see a day when, as Paul would say again, when all creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God? Do you long for this? This is what Jesus is doing. Even in this little story, it's one story, but it's a vignette, one little taste of something much bigger that's going on. Jesus is giving a preview of God's coming kingdom where those who are hopeless and and, and lost, certainly redeemed by the work of Jesus, but a, a coming day when it won't be like this anymore. Wow. I want to be there. I want to live in that day. And if you know Christ is your Savior, you will. You will. Now, again, theologically speaking, as we have in looking at Isaiah, there are some who identify those statements about the coming kingdom. They identify them with the eternal state. If this makes sense to you, enter this moment with me. Um, I have let you know that I believe, uh, as the teaching position of this church, is that there's another kingdom uh, preceding that. So eternal state, and yet this other time, even placed here on earth, And I I do believe in that coming kingdom located here, coming kingdom of your father, David, different from heaven. Whether you know what I just was talking about or see it different blessings on you, it's okay. But I think Jesus is talking about that. And then, of course, melding into eternity future. I see a difference between those two that I think is appropriate to call out at this point. Now, my third little bullet point here in heading toward a close, Jesus' disciples wrongly assumed that in this first coming, Christ would establish his still future kingdom. The people of Jesus' day, until he died on the cross, they didn't see two comings. This is really obvious through the Gospels. They saw one. They didn't see two. The first coming, of course, where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We paid the penalty for us as he died on Calvary's cross, that first coming, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and indeed will come again. They didn't see that. They saw Jesus coming as a coming conqueror, healing the sick, raising the dead, throwing off the bondage of Rome, and heading into this cool period 
David's, David's renewed kingdom. That's what they saw. This is evident. I'll give you a couple of texts here, just a few of the, the many that are in the Gospels. Luke 19 and verse 10, which is really close to this in terms of its space in the Gospel. After they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He's addressing his followers. They thought the kingdom of God was coming then. They didn't see the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, it just flipped everything on its head for them. Wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen. We're supposed to head right into this cool kingdom thing. What is this death on the cross business? They didn't get it, didn't like it. Similarly, after Jesus rises from the dead, and you find him there in the Mount of Olives to ascend to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they ask him then, so is it now? I mean, that was kind of cool. Um, Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom? And that's where Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me here in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's where we live today. Okay? I gave you another reference there, Mark 11, 9 and 10. That's Mark's telling, based probably on witness from Peter, of the triumphal entry where the coming kingdom, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, is referenced. So, so apparently in that crowd, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, there were those who were saying, kingdom, it's the kingdom time. Here he comes, it's the king. Not seeing the cross that was to come, the need for sin to be atoned for, our sin, yours and mine. Now, a couple of things that I want to just think, that was a, a kind of a theological uh, attachment, I think, that's significant to, to today's text. But I, I don't want you to miss a couple of things. For one, kind of the main point here, in the, in the little story of these 10 lepers, the, the shocking element that a Samaritan comes back, the one who is least likely to give thanks, and Jesus said, where are the others? I would not want that to be said of us. That Jesus would look at us and say, well, where are the others? Where are the others who pause to give thanks to me? The others probably felt thankful. They just never said it. Where are the others? Don't be among the, where are the others? Be among those who give word to, to God himself for his great work in bringing Christ to be our Savior, in redeeming you. Give thanks to him for what he's done, for his kindnesses in your life, even with all the elements of brokenness. Do not allow elements of brokenness and things that are hurting to keep you from saying thank, thank you to God this year. Okay? It's not kingdom yet. Until the day that we're there, things will be broken. And in the meantime, you say thank you. Thank you to God for what he's done. I'm eager with you to step into Advent because we get to look from that standpoint of, of eternity, looking back, the finished work of redemption, Next week, the peace of heaven, that's the title of our play this year. He shall reign forever and ever. We'll step into Revelation. In these next few weeks, I, I just am so excited to go here with you as we look back from that, that viewpoint and say what a wonderful thing God has done. I want to pray for us, and I'd love to have you stand with me as we close our time in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for this telling of the story of Jesus by, by dear Luke. I thank you for his pointing us to a savior who, who died in our place on the cross, paying the penalty, the just penalty for our sin so that we could be reconciled with you, our creator. I thank you for how true that is, that that's exactly what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
I also thank you for the second coming, his soon coming, we trust, uh, to take us to be with you. We look forward to that day. Father, I pray that all who are here and others who listen later to our comments this morning, that, that they would be drawn to you. You do the great work that only you can do in drawing men and women and young people to yourself through the gospel. Open our eyes, open blind eyes to see and to believe. Father, do your work. Thank you for the evening we have ahead here as a church family and for this, this week. Uh, we're grateful for so many things. In Jesus' name, amen.